Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Good morning, church. I hope everyone can hear me. Uh, My name is Abigail, and I'll be giving the scripture reading today. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 1 to 7. Again, that is Revelation 2, verse 1 to 7. To the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, verse 1 to 7. Thank you. Thank you, Abigail. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's open up to the passage that she just read. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so if you're still getting acquainted with Scripture, it's fairly easy to find. If you don't have a Bible... There are some in the pews in front of you, and we would love for you to take, uh, take that one home with you if you don't own one. I want to apologize <clears throat> ahead of time for sounding a little bit nasally uh, this morning. Um, I'm still recovering from a pretty emotional football game last night, so <laughs> for those of you who know, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so we're, last week, we, we started this series that we're in on the the book, the first few chapters of Revelation, and Revelation opens with this passage from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus is, in, is dictating to John, who wrote down what he saw. He says, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So Jesus says this to John, and then what follows from there is exactly that. And so we're looking specifically at these first few chapters of Revelation, um, the letters to the church. So what we'll see and what we just heard from Abigail was this this first letter that was addressed to to this church in a place called Ephesus. Now, uh, some of you, many of you don't know, but uh, I'm a second generation Christian. That means that my parents were first-generation Christians. Both my mother and my father in the 60s and 70s, late 60s, early 70s, came to faith in Christ. Um, And then they actually met uh, in a church and actually worked at a a business that was owned by a church, a a local newspaper, and uh, began their faith journey there. They had some kind of awareness of God, you know, growing up, but there had never been a commitment to Christ. So I'm a second-generation Christian, grew, grew up in the church because of my parents. Uh, my dad was a worship leader uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my younger years. Uh, 
And they were always like super engaged with the, the, the life of the church, the family that they were a part of. Um, in my 44 years of, of life, um, I've been really blessed to visit churches, not just in different states or different cities, but I've been able to visit churches in nine different countries, um, East Asia, Africa, Europe. Um, most of that was done when I was doing some missions work with the Christian Missions Agency. So I have uh, kind of an international picture, image of what the church looks like in place to place and how the different forms of the church um, may look differently depending on where they are in China, right? There's, they look different than they do in, in Renton. Um, I've also served on the ministry staff of four different churches in California, Eastern Washington, and here at Sunset Community Church. Um, so I have, a, I have a, a kind of a big view of what church is, what it looks like, what's challenging, what's beautiful. Um, one of the things that I can say, like having visited so many different churches and so many different cultures, is church is not a building or a set of programs or events. It's not. Church is a people who have been called and changed by the grace of Jesus. And those people, when they receive that call, then they gather together. That's the church. We talked about this last week. Um, one of the things I've seen as I've uh, visited and experienced different church settings is Jesus is perfect, but we are not. So there's no such thing as a perfect church. Um, at our best... When we're all committed to following Jesus, then the church can be an amazing witness to the broken world around us. But I think you all know, and hopefully, hopefully you know, uh, if you've been in church for any period of time, there is no perfect church. I heard somebody say years ago, if you find the perfect church, don't go there because it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. Um, so there's no perfect church, there's no perfect leadership, there's no perfect structure, there's no perfect gathering, but there is something beautiful and powerful when the church gathers together, when, it's, when we've responded to the grace of Jesus, and when we're committed to follow Jesus, no matter what, through all our messiness. So these letters that we're going to look at over the next weeks, I think actually point to the truth of this, that there is no perfect church. Um, I, I grew up, because I grew up in the church, I remember... Oftentimes hearing people say, oh, if only we could be like the early church. And I want to say, which one? Because if you've read the Bible at all, most of the early churches had major, major issues. In fact, a lot of those churches, if you and I were to go visit them today, we'd be like, I'm out. The church in Corinth, no way. That church is messed up. We're not going there, right? The church in Ephesus, well, they got some, like, we could go down the list and come up with a lot of reasons, good reasons even, to not go associate with that church. But the reality is, is when Jesus wrote these letters to the churches and when the churches first formed, there was no other options, right? Right in our, in our cities today, especially in the Western world, go to any city and you'll find how many churches? Many of them. And so it makes sense that um, because we live in a culture where it's like the Burger King illustration or mantra is have it your way, that we go and look for churches so we could have it our way. Right? Well, in the, in the first century, that, that wasn't an option. You want to you wanna be a part of the church in a city like Ephesus? There's one of them. So you're going to make it work, don't you? You've got to work through these things. You've got to grow together. You're going to bump into each other. It's going to be messy and ugly. So as we look at these letters, it's, it's, I think it's important, first of all, to, re to remember that. 
There was no first and second church of Ephesus, right? Um, there was the church in Ephesus. And so what Abigail just read to us is, is the first of these letters where Jesus is addressing his church, his church. And he addresses it with care and compassion. But with that care and compassion is also uh, a challenge to be the church that he wants them to be. So let me just give a, a, a brief um, kind of historical background on the church in Ephesus that Abigail just read about. And then we'll look at kind of what, they've, what they're doing well and what Jesus is challenging them to get back to. So first of all, Ephesus is a real place. You can go there today. It's in western Turkey. Um, it's no longer a city. It's now ancient ruins, but it's not far from an actual city in Turkey. Ephesus was not quite on the coast, but not far from the coast either. So you could go and visit there today and see some of the ruins, the ruins of Ephesus. Ephesus, at the time that this letter was written, was a major metropolis, uh, a destination kind of city, um, kind of like uh, maybe uh, Anaheim is. is that's, where, that's where Disneyland is, right? Like you go, to, you go to Southern California for Disneyland. A lot of people would go to Ephesus for more of a spiritual Disneyland than a fun happiest place on earth, Disneyland. And I'll explain that. There, is, there was a, a fertility cult, a temple, massive temple there um, that was dedicated to a goddess. And people would, would, would travel and spend uh, days in the city of Ephesus to worship in this temple in a variety of ways, many of which were very sexual. As a fertility goddess, you could imagine, would be, there was some interesting rituals that went along with that. And so Ephesus was a destination city because of this goddess cult that existed there. Ephesus had actually at the, that time one of the most, uh, one of the biggest stadiums uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire that seated about 50,000 people. I think uh, Lumen Field seats about, what, 70,000 people. So pretty big, pretty big for the ancient world 2,000 years ago. Um, when this letter in particular is written, Ephesus was a little bit, experiencing a little bit of decline. Some of the, the loyalty to the, the goddess that was there in the city was starting to wane a little bit. And so when that wanes, then the finances wane. It's kind of like as if Disneyland were going, starting to go downhill a little bit. People are like, eh, not sure if we're going to make that trip anymore. But concurrently with that, there was another thing that was brewing in that city. It was this faith, the Christian faith, that was rising up. And many people were abandoning the cultist kind of worship, and they were starting to devote themselves to God. So this is kind of the cultural setting. The biblical setting, we understand as we read Scripture that the Apostle Paul, one of his missionary journeys took him to the city of Ephesus, and he lived there for three years. And that's most likely where, when this church came to, actually not most likely, it is when this church came to be, a church in Ephesus. And most likely uh, from that, that church that started in Ephesus, there were six other churches that were started in nearby cities. Um, so this church, as this letter is being, being addressed to them, um, is actually now, just like me, it's a second generation church. This is probably about 40 years after the church was started after Paul wrote, after Paul started the church, and actually Paul had already written a letter to this church, which we have in Scripture, the letter 
to the Ephesians. So let's look at this together. And as we look at these letters, we're going to be obviously wading into what was the original audience and what was intended. We want to know that. But then I think there's always something that God is saying to us as a church as well. Sometimes you learn from others' mistakes, right? You learn, and you learn from what they're doing well. So let's look first at what they're doing well. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Wow, what an affirmation. What an affirmation. God is, Jesus is saying to them, man, you are doing good things. You're, you're, we could say you're being service-oriented. It seems that, th- that this church has, has some action to back up their beliefs. Isn't that what we want to be as a church? We want to be a church that not just says what we believe, but demonstrates what we believe. It seems that this church is doing that. Not only are they doing that, but they're also holding on to what is true. What is true about God? What is true about the the Christian faith? They're holding on to that, and we get an idea of how they're holding on to that. First of all, they're recognizing when false teachers or false missionaries would come into the, the church and begin to say things that don't line up with what is true. So what does it say? You, you don't receive those that are false apostles. And then there's a, a calling out even of a, of a specific uh, group. We see it in verse 6 called the, the Nicolaitans. And we'll, we'll hear about them more later in a different letter. But this group in particular um, really was trying to encourage Christians like, okay, yeah, you got this, this God thing. Like, Jesus is cool. That's great. Hold on to that. But, but, but you can also still do the things that you were doing before. Like that whole temple worship thing, probably not a big deal. You can, you can still conform, kind of stay in sync with the world before you became a Christian. And so there's a, there's a massive concern there that they would be led to conform Christians to the world rather than having Christians change the world. And so they're not buying into that. They're recognizing that kind of false teaching and they're holding on to what is true. So they're doing good things. They're, they're pushing back against false doctrine. And then the third thing we see is that they're dealing with the unpopularity of being a Christian in that culture. Now, John, who wrote this, is actually in exile because of his faith. And so that means that there is a, a definitely an unfriendly posture toward these Christians that are trying to follow in the ways of Jesus. Interestingly enough, because Rome had many different gods, and actually several emperors like Nero even considered themselves gods, Christians were initially considered by the Roman culture as atheists. I don't know if you've heard this before, but that, that they literally used that term about Christians. And here's why. Not because they didn't believe in God. They didn't they didn't believe in enough gods. So because the Christians only said there is only one God, then by the culture standards, they were atheists. Isn't that interesting? And so there was, there was a, 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 an animosity, a, a, at times a pretty intense persecution toward those Christians. So this is what they're doing well. They're dealing 
with the unpopularity of being Christian well, even suffering under that. They're recognizing false teaching. They are they're known for their good works. So what is wrong? What is wrong? If, this, if they're doing these things well, what is wrong? Well, we see Jesus says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, this is a warning. How many of you have lampstands in your, okay, <laughs> maybe some of you do around Christmas time or something, but this idea of removing a lampstand, what does it signify? It signifies you will no longer be my church. It sounds pretty harsh, but really what it is is it's just confirming what's already happened. The flame has already faded. You've already lost what it means to be my church. And so I'm just going to pull the lamp down. I'm going to make it official, what's already happened. So this is a warning. So they are doing good things. They're holding the right teaching. They're not giving in to cultural pressure, but they are missing the thing that is the most important. The love you had at first. At first. Can you remember a first love? What does a first love look like for you? It's often a love that has this kind of extra passion to it, doesn't it? When you first set your eyes on your, your baby. When you first set your eyes on that good-looking person across the way, right? When you first got married and you entered into that, those first honeymoon days, there's this passion, there's this devotion, there's this commitment. I am all in on this. So in a sense here, it's not that they've lost all love, but they've lost a type of love that is needed for intimacy, a type of love that is passionate and all in. One generation before this church, there was a letter written to the very first generation, the beginning Christians. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and what? And your love for all God's people. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Like love was a marker of this church from the very beginning. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24 says how they have love for Jesus. And chapter 5 verse 2 shows that they have love for one another. And we see that again here. Somewhere along the way, love that defined this church had faded. And so what had happened is that duty had replaced devotion. Duty had replaced devotion. When does that happen? How, how easy is that to ha- does that happen within our own relationships even? We just go through the motions doing the right things, but we've been disconnected from that first love. A few weeks ago, we looked at our mission statement as a church And one of the key verses of that mission statement, to love God, to love people, and to love our city, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says, to love the Lord your God with all your strength, sorry, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do you notice the progression there? Heart, the inward part of who we are, soul, and then strength, like what we can demonstrate 
what we demonstrate without love. This is how love works. It works, always works, from the inside out. So what happens when the heart no longer loves, when duty replaces devotion, when we're doing stuff, but there is no intimacy of relationship? You know, as a parent, I always tell my kids how much I love them. You know I love you. And then what, do I, what is it so easy to default to to like prove that love? You know I love you. I, I work hard to provide. I, I take you to all your sports practices. I'm paying for your college. You know I love you. When we default our love to duty, then oftentimes it's because there's a, a separation that we've lost something of intimacy. We do this with our spouse sometimes. You know I love you. We, we, we go out on regular dates, right? We're, we're a good team taking care of the kids. We're, we're working hard together, saving for a future. Do you hear a similar theme? Like we're doing things. Uh, oftentimes when I meet with couples, we talk about kind of the three postures that they might find themselves in their marriage. When you first get married, you're face-to-face, aren't you? Intimacy. I love you. And then life kicks in and you become kind of shoulder-to-shoulder. All right, we're in this together. But if you're not careful, eventually you're back to back. You're moving away from each other. When duty replaces devotion, it's easy to forget our first love. When there's no intimacy, the intimacy being known and fully knowing, when the things that were done once out of love become done out of obligation, they quickly become rote, kind of dead cut off from that love. And so it's only a matter of time until the relationship itself is on life support. So while Jesus is clearly warning them, saying the lampstand will be removed, it's really only because the flame has gone out. And I'm, again, I've, I've worked with and visited and met with so many different leaders and so many different churches <clears throat> and what I often see is as that lamp sand starts to fade in the church, what churches will do is they'll say, we need to do more. We need to do more. What program should we implement? What service project should we do? It's interesting that the churches that are dying are often the busiest. A couple years ago, we had, <coughs> excuse me, we had a friend come and visit us that we had known since we lived in Spokane, so we've known him for some years. And our friend was expressing to us how, how much their faith has changed since we've known them over the years. And she began to confess to us. She said, you know, when we were raising our kids, they were kind of second-generation parents, Christian parents as well, We were raising our kids, and we were really focused with them on doing the right thing. Don't do this. Do this. And so we began to develop a whole faith that was built on kind of these these rules, these list of behaviors. And she said what we realized was Jesus wasn't in the picture at all. We weren't introducing them to Jesus and his love for them, explaining well what the gospel actually is. And she said, when the light came on and we realized that, it was like a new faith. 
What are we teaching? How are we leading? What is intimacy look like for us? So Jesus brings this out of concern, this exhortation. And the question is, what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, Jesus says, remember. He says, sorry, repent, remember, and change. Look at verse 5. It says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Consider how far you have fallen. So what he's saying is, do you see where you are? Are you aware of this? Do you understand? Like a marriage that's grown cold, are you willing to admit it? And if so, what are you doing about it? What are you willing to change? Do you see where you're at? And then he says, repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, turn back. You can recover that relationship. You can find that intimacy again. John 15, Jesus records, kind of gives this illustration of what it means to be abiding in him. If you remember that, that illustration, he uses a picture of a, of a vine, a grapevine with branches that are coming off of it. If those branches are connected to the vine, then fruit appears. If they're not, they may actually look okay for a bit, and they will die. I actually had this very real-world application happen. We actually have a grapevine in our backyard. And it, if, you, if you have a grapevine, they go crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. Uh, they, they will grow up trees and in one season, like, literally take over. So you have to continue to prune it, or else you will get no fruit. And uh, I remember I had been pruning some stuff, and usually I like pull it off and, and let it go. Well, I had forgotten one pretty big kind of sucker that was not going to produce any fruit. I had cut and left it there. And I remember about a week later, two weeks later, I walked out, and I saw it, and it was dead, and I was shocked. I was like, what the? And then I realized, oh, I had cut it off two weeks ago, but it had taken two weeks for it to actually look affected, looked dead. This is true for us. And so Jesus uses this illustration saying, stay connected in me. The key word in John 15 is remain. Remain. Remain in me. Like branches connected to a vine. It's this intimacy with God, this connectedness with him, that fosters a deep and abiding love. I would describe intimacy as this. To know God and to be fully known by him. One of the things that we've tried to practice with our kids for years is one-on-one -on -one time. As you have more kids, that gets more difficult as they get busier with their schedules. And so it's easy, again, to default to that. Don't you see what I'm doing, to you, doing for you? This is, this is my love for you, my provision for you. But we've found how essential it is to have just times of intimacy with our kids. And this looks differently for us in different seasons. When my boys turned 14, it looked like a special trip, just the two of us. Yesterday, it looked like taking one of my boys out for a cup of coffee and just letting him... Yeah, he drinks coffee now, so you probably know who that might be. Um, and all I did was just sit there with him and let him talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. 
And I was sitting there with him, and, I, and, I, and I, a couple thoughts hit me. One is, wow, I can't believe some of the things he's sharing with me. And I never would have shared this with my dad. But I also realized my dad didn't make space for that. And my, I love my dad. He was a great dad. But there was never any opportunities to really sit and to, to be with each other. This is what God desires for us. Yes, the fruit of that love is things, is stuff that we do. But if we don't remain with him, if we don't have that intimacy with God, then something is missing. So what about us today? What would Jesus write to us? What would Jesus write? Uh, uh, some of you are probably, you're visiting today, so I'm not going to hold this on your head. But if Sunset Community Church is your church, then it's part of your identity. Like, we're in this together. This is not an event we attend or a, a nonprofit org that we partner together with, um, you know, and so we can feel good about our volunteer hours or something. Like this, is, this is part of who we are as the church. What would Jesus write to us? Let me tell you something uh, on a good side. We have, as a church a really, really good reputation in our neighborhood and in our city. A really good reputation. I've been a pastor in four different churches, and I've never been able to say that with the confidence that I can say it about our church. Uh, and the reason we do is because I think we've loved well. That's part of our heart, is to love our city well. Whether it's after-school program that, that Lavelle has, has given leadership to, um, whether it's um, ways that we've engaged with the community. I mean, this last summer, we worked with the city to host the, the movie night up there, feeding folks during COVID. I mean, all sorts of things. We have a, we have a great reputation. <clears throat> Years ago, I heard somebody say, if your church ceased to exist, would people notice? Ooh, that's a sobering question, isn't it? I can, without hesitation, say absolutely. Absolutely, they would notice. And I can honestly say that the reason we do what we do is because of love. But, like the letter to Ephesus, I'm being challenged. I've been challenged this week to ask the question, is that love out of a deep intimacy or is it more out of a Christian duty? And this really is both an individual and an us together thing. When I ask that question, we have to say, I have to start with me. Am I doing these things out of deep intimacy with God? Or because I have to? Because I feel like I should. Do you see the difference? So we collectively need to ask that question and personally need to ask that question. And so just, just as Jesus called the church in Ephesus to consider where they are and to repent, I want to ask us kind of two-ish questions as our response to help us kind of consider where we're at, to, to consider and to repent if we need to. The first question, let me ask you just uh, personal levels, how many, how many generations of Christians are in your family? Uh, just just uh, how many of you are first generation? Like you, this is it. You just, you're the first Christian in your family. I'm just curious. Okay, a handful of you. How many of you second generation? It was kind of passed on to you. Third generation? Wow. Fourth generation? 
Amazing. Fifth generation? Yeah, fifth generation. Sixth? Sixth generation. Anybody seventh or more? Wow. Beautiful. Amazing. That is amazing. So then the other question would be this. What's been passed on to you in your Christian faith? What's been passed on to you in your Christian faith? And the the two-ish question, what are you passing on? Is it, if it's just moral duties or good deeds or right belief, it's not connected to the vine, it's not connected to Jesus, then something's off, right? We want to be connected to Jesus. So these are good questions for us to consider and if we need to, to repent. Oh, God, forgive me when I put duty over devotion. Draw me close to you as the vine. So in closing, Jesus doesn't write these instructions as some sort of disapproving parent. Please know that. He writes them as the God who came down into our space, who took our sin on himself, suffered horribly for it on the cross, and then He forgave us. He took our sin and then he forgave it. And then in our lowest place, in our most broken and desperate situations, with the stink of our own sin still around us, Jesus comes into that and he says, I love you. I love you. Have you heard that yet? Have you heard that Jesus loves you? that Jesus cares. He is not a disapproving parent. He is one that says, I have given everything for you. I love you. I want to be close to you. And so based on that, 1 John says this, says, we love because he first loved us. Just like a parent, right? When you hold that baby and you, I love you, and they, they don't even know who you are. They can't even really see you. Their eyes are still developing. I love you. But as you love them, they receive that love and they love you back. This is Jesus towards you. He has loved you before you ever knew him. And that has never changed. And so as Jesus ends this letter to this church, he says this, whoever has ears to hear. And that's actually an invitation for us today, not just to this church. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is really an invitation. It's an invitation to this life. And so Jesus wraps this letter up with just a reaffirmation of what it's all about, of what his love is for us. And so this morning, if you haven't received that love, if you haven't understood Jesus' posture toward you, I hope that you've heard that today. If you want to step into that, if you want to be a part of his forever family, today would be a great that step. And so I want to pray to that end and have the worship team come up. And we're going to sing a song that really connects with this idea from John 15 of abiding, of remaining in Jesus.
So it'll be a time for reflection for us as well. But let's, let's start by praying together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak truth to us, that as a loving Father, you don't let us get too far before you call us back. And we see that expressed in this letter to this ancient church, but we hear the echo of that today in our own hearts. Father, would we consider where we are this morning? And if we need to repent, we need a change of mind, we need to reorient ourselves, would you make that clear to us, both as individuals and as a church? We do not want the flame to go out. So Father, may it be rekindled, that passion, that intimacy of knowing you and being known. Thank you. Thank you for your love, Lord. A love that changes everything. May we receive it anew today. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.